there was a big white space at the bottom of a letter. After yours truly, Fanny Bryce. I got an old typewriter and I wrote a couple of hot sentences that improved the letter and elevated the price. That's how Lee Israel described the start of what would go on to be a spree of forging and amending letters from various American personalities throughout the mid-20th century. Accompanied by a charming sidekick with an affinity for money-making mischief who went by the name of Jack Hawk, Lee Israel would quickly make quite the name for herself as one of the most notable literary forgers the world had ever seen, and even ended up having a blockbuster film made about these escapades. Welcome to Fakes and Frauds. in have a seat we're very happy to have you joining us for another episode where we will be dissecting a bizarre tale with the help of an undeniably talented comedian that comedian today is one that perhaps you're familiar with she has written for a ton of amazing programs such as have i got news for you the nay show and Newschuck, as well as performing stand-up all across this fine united kingdom including bits with the lol word who are a comedy collective that is co-run by Chloe Petz from our wonderful episode on Ali Daya a few weeks ago. And speaking of previous guests, if you remember Harry Monaghan from episode number one of this fine second season, well, Anya and Harry have a wonderful podcast of their own called The Weekly Shop, and it's one hell of a treat. Anya Magliano, everybody. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh my God, my pleasure. Fakes and frauds. Two of my favourite things. I am both of them. <laughs> Great. And I hope that, that they those come out throughout the episode slowly, like a ball of twine unravelling. That's exactly what I want. That's what I want this to be. I want myself to slowly unravel mentally throughout this hour. I think that's, that's what your listeners want as well. I think they, that's exactly what they've specifically been asking for. And... <laughs> Um, I hope you all have such a fun time. Like, it feels like it could be one of those, you know, books when you had, when you were a kid and like, you had to like, find all the pieces. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I had one of those books, but they sound amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, like a scavenger hunty thing, except the scavenger hunt is your mental well-being. Like, yeah, that is how I feel all the time. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, well, we are here today for a very uh, special reason. We are here to discuss one of the biggest sort of literary forgery cases in the world. My personal favorite, if I had to choose. And you do. And good. I'm glad someone's finally pushed me to make a decision. <laughs> Because yeah, I've been do you know what? If you hadn't it. made a decision, I would have ended the call right now. I would have gone. Yeah, <laughs> fair, fair. But forging documents can be a bad thing. We don't condone this behavior. But I would like to know, Anya Magliano, have you ever dabbled in the dark arts <laughs> of <laughs> document forgery? Yeah, I fully have. Um, not like nothing quite official where saying it on the podcast would um, 
could, could cause trouble for me. Luckily, right. um, I once forged, I mean, though all, at the time that I did this, it did feel like I could go to jail, like, because right. I was quite young. I was like, maybe 14, 15. I forged a letter from my dad to my school to get me out of school for a day because I wanted to go and be in a short film, which is the most ridiculous sentence, but I knew school wouldn't let me out of school to go and do it. Well, actually this completely unraveled like a ball of twine because um, I feel like it was so, it was so sod's law that like I said I had a dentist appointment and then on that day, someone actually called to check where I was and they were like, oh, isn't she at a dentist appointment today? And my family were like, no, she's at school. And then long story short, I had to come home from, I got picked up from the short film film set by a very angry dad. But it wasn't quite forging a document, I, but I did make a fake email account, which is an okay. easier way to forge in the 21st century. All you need is a you know, a keyboard and an internet connection. Um, and a will and a des- burning desire to be a actor. Exactly, exactly. Um, but that's that's my only, only dabble. I feel like there are times when I wish I could because I feel like it's so inconvenient. If you ever need like a scan of a passport or something and you need it to be like uh, verified by a lawyer. Oh like my gosh. Yeah. accessing a will as I am all the time <laughs> um but like I remember when I when I had to get um that sort of thing I was just like why like obviously no one in this day and age owns a printer or a photocopier so one I have to get a scan and then I have to get this certified by a solicitor and it's like I'm a woman with a life to live I don't have time to do this <laughs> so if I knew how to if I knew how to forge that I would have but I'm not I'm not that good at uh I mean, I'm sure there's like a gum, a gum tree, a WikiHow article about it. <laughs> it does also seem like one of those things that like to someone like you and I with little experience in the certification industry, we might think, oh yeah, piece of piss. I've got a, I've got a stamp. I've got a signature, but actually there's some encrypted code that we don't know about. I mean, or it might that's... be the other way around where we think that and actually it's so it's simple like a double and like, yeah, we could, so everyone could be forging documents left, right and center if they had the guts to do it, but they're relying on like, they're relying on the fear. They're relying on our fear of getting caught when actually it could be really easy to do. Oh my God. We're just, these chains are self-imposed. Yeah. And you know what? I think the listeners of this podcast should go out and give it a go and let us know what happens. Please do report back. Um, (laughs) We don't like, we don't really condone it, but if you do do it, you have to let us know. Oh yeah. If they do it, oh my God, it will have no connection to this. It will be a completely random idea in their brain. Yeah, exactly. We don't have that kind of influence. We're just two, two little ladies sitting around minding our own business. Having a convo. Okay, so you're um, seasoned in the art of um, forging documents. That's good. Good to know. I heard about another woman who um, has also dabbled in that world, and uh, we shall be discussing her today. So, 
Leonore Carol Israel was born on December 3rd, 1939, to parents Jack and Sylvia Israel. Growing up in Brooklyn, New York in the 40s and 50s, Leonore Israel, picking up the nickname Lee along the way, always longed to be a writer. In 1961, she graduated from Brooklyn College and quickly secured various writing jobs, including writing for Esquire, where she published a number of stories on some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including Katherine Hepburn, before eventually going on to have a number of books on the New York Times bestseller list. Smashing it. Absolutely smashing it. So... Yeah, it all sounds pretty good so far, doesn't it? Yeah, 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 that's it. The end. It's just a story about a, a woman who knew what she wanted. <laughs> just an inspirational little toy. It's a TED Talk. <laughs> exactly. Thank you for joining. So... Some of her most notable works included the biography she penned for Tallulah Bankhead and Dorothy Kilgan, but it was her book for the makeup mogul Estee Lauder, released in 1985, that would mark the downfall of Lee Israel's writing career. See, Lee didn't believe in sugarcoating things, and she wasn't one to accept bribes from the subjects of her books. So when she decided to expose various lies that Estee Lauder had publicly made, such as being born into European aristocracy and was a regular attendee of a church in Florida, the cosmetics queen quickly condemned the book and promptly released one of her own, one that went on to sell many more copies than Israel's. I didn't know that people bribed books. I mean, also, like, I guess maybe in my heart of hearts, I did. Um, maybe that is true. But, like, also, I didn't know that Estee Lauder, like, had books, like, had multiple biographies. But she's got at least two, we've learned. She's got at least of her own. At least two. At least two. But I, yeah, I guess, do you know what, with makeup brands, I always forget that there's like, they're always named after a person. I'm always like, that's just so, like some random name they've come up with. It's like usually fully one person well, who started it. I don't know if you know this fact. You know Max Factor? That's not after a guy called Max Factor, is it? Are you actually joking? No. That makes me, that's literally made me feel a bit dizzy. <laughs> That's an that's insane. Okay, His name is to, Mr. Max Factor. Okay, okay. To be fair, his his name was Maximilian, spelled with a K. Um, what? Where's the K? M A K S Y M I L I A N. What Polish. is going on there? Polish. Wait, don't be yeah, racist. I'm half, Pol I'm half Polish. <laughs> that does sound like something we would get up to to be fair <laughs> so maximilian spelt in a polishy kind of way mm -hmm. and then his surname is Factorowicz. so f-a-k-t-o-r-o-w-i-c-z my jaw is on the floor i can't believe this isn't what the podcast is about <laughs> yeah i mean i didn't i didn't expect to be sharing that fact today but i'm glad i did because i'm gonna i'm gonna tell this fact to everyone i know I mean, it, it did the rounds on, I think, TikTok a while ago, so you might be a bit bit late on the train. But um, but no, I, I'm i sure there are demographics in which haven't come across this, and I thoroughly encourage you to spread the word. <laughs> the gospel. Thank you, thank you so much. <laughs> right, so Estee Lauder, yeah, she's got at least two biographies. It seems like Israel, Lee Israel was like, I'm going to write a biography about your life. And she was like, please don't. <laughs> 
I will give you all this money to not do that. And Leah or do you Joe think was she like, was like, I'll give you all this money to write a good one that makes you sound really good? I think that when Leah's real made it clear that she's like, I ain't here to make friends. Then Estee Lauder was like, fuck, okay, fine, take all my money. Don't tell them about the fact that I lied about going to a church in Florida, which is such a weird thing to lie about, but okay. Yeah, also surely not that big a deal. You know, I'm sure some people yeah, say that they go to church when they just mean Christmas and stuff, you know? I don't know. But And also the European aristocracy thing, that would not happen now. That would be the opposite of what people would lie about now. People would be like, yeah, I was born would... in a dumpster fire, you know? Yeah, 100%, 100%. But uh, different times, different times. Which ones do you think? It, do you think it's easier to lie about being in our aristocracy when you're not actually, or do you think it's easier to lie the other way around? Easier to lie about being in an aristocracy situation. Yeah, <laughs> which I, I obviously agree. am from how I speak yeah. about it. Um, because also, like, if you're not in that world, you could be like, oh, well, you don't know about it because, you know, oh, oh, my family's not in Wikipedia because Wikipedia is for plebs. We have our own version, you know? Yeah, exactly. You could just, you could, if you're not talking to anyone in it, you can make up anything and just pass it off, right? I guess. Whereas I guess if you're the other way around, you'd have to really, like, fully change your name and, like, I might start lying about being an aristocracy. I can see that for you. Polish but- aristocracy. The descendant yeah. of Maximilian Factor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the heiress to the Max Factor Empire. I would 100% uh, add that to your Wikipedia. Have a Wikipedia? <laughs> no, I don't, but. Okay, well, I guess that's what I'm doing on. for the rest of the afternoon. <laughs> exactly. After she had published this Estee Lauder biography, she says, I had made a mistake. Instead of taking a great deal of money from a woman as rich as April, I had published a bad, unimportant book, rushed it off in months to beat Estee Lauder's own memoir to market. So it was this blunder combined with Israel's notoriously crass attitude that would lead to years of struggling to pay the rent and watching bills pile high. The idea of working a more mundane nine-to-five job was out of the question for her, stating, I regarded with pity and disdain the short-sleeve wage slave who worked in offices. Why, why is that an issue? Who's wearing short sleeves in an office? I don't understand. Anyway, she was like, I can't do that. I'm Lee Israel. Yeah, I do feel that is like quite classic artist attitude, isn't it? Like there are so many people who are like, oh no, like I can't be a slave to the man. And it's like, yeah, obviously none of us want to be a slave to the man, but if you're renting in London, you have to be a slave to the man. I guess, yeah, this was like 80s, 90s New York. So mm-hmm. maybe maybe she could get away with it. It was maybe. Anyway, she couldn't for long. She led her to a life of crime. Let's see, let's see what happens. So eventually she was relying on support from the government to get by. This is what Israel claims had led her to delve into the world of crime, a venture that opened the doors to both the highest highs and lowest lows of Lee Israel's life. Despite making a name for herself, being quite talented at penning the life stories of high-profile figures, Lee's interpersonal skills, or lack thereof, would often be the reason that many steered clear from working with her throughout the 90s. After years of receiving state welfare, Israel stumbled upon a new way to make money, and very little social contact would be required. 
Her venture began in an honest way after discovering old letters from actor, comedian, and singer Fanny Bryce and selling them on for small sums. It's suspected that this is what gave her inspiration to try her luck and forge letters from various high-profile names like Noel Coward, Edna Farber, Dorothy Parker, and Lillian Hellman, then taking these letters to New York collectors to turn a profit. After all, she had proved herself a talented writer and held a rich knowledge of various authors and their writing styles, so she reckoned she may just have a chance. And she was right. Lee Israel was able to treat her bank account to more money than it had seen in years. But somewhere along the way, our friend, Miss Israel, realized that this game couldn't last forever. After all, there were only so many rare letters that one woman could supposedly stumble across. She says, quote, I went to the library and was given a bunch of letters, which I should not have been given in a non-secure area. These letters were penned by some of the biggest stars of modern times. See, Miss Israel had a plan. In order to make ends meet, she would carefully steal letters and sell them on to unsuspecting collectors. But in order to increase their worth, she herself would insert an extra line or two where the letters allowed that would add an additional element of spice, making them even more appealing to these interested buyers. Oh my God, so she's like upcycling them. 100%. That's so smart. So, and you know, she's super familiar with these people, so she knows how they speak and stuff. And it's much easier, yeah, to get away with sort of selling on a genuine letter but just some saucy bit added at the end. Yeah, but like, it must be so hard, like to get the like right pen and like hand right. It would look so obvious. It would look so obvious if you just, you know, if it was in written in black biro and you just add in in blue, like, P.S. This guy's a wanker. <laughs> like, <laughs> like a scented. Which I imagine is the is is the gist of what she was doing. <laughs> That's so. But that is such a good idea. Thankfully, these guys were very much into typewriters. So oh. handwriting issue out the window. Okay, there we go. But it, she does say that she spent quite a lot of time like sourcing all these typewriters from all the like, kind of different eras and things like that. Um, so yeah, she was only having to just kind of like, basically it seemed like she was finding like a, a gap in paragraphs that was large enough to include what she wanted or or just before the signature or stuff like that. Um, so in in one letter by Noel Coward, Israel added a comment about Julie Andrews being, quote, quite attractive since she's dealt with her monstrous English overbite. This forgery was so convincing that it even made its way into a book entitled The Letters of Noel Coward, fooling even the publishers into thinking that this was the genuine original. This just sounds like a lot of effort to go to. Like, I think if you're getting like multiple typewriters and having to find gaps in letters to add comments like that, like surely just get a nine to five job. But she couldn't work with those short sleeved wage slaves or whatever. She couldn't. She couldn't. <laughs> but she like she so, so this up. is this is kind of one approach that she had to her her forgeries. But we we go on to learn that there's other there's more as well. So in the midst of her forging spree, Israel would meet a man who by many accounts became her only friend and conveniently was also a seasoned criminal who was able to assist her with pawning many of her forged letters. Jack Hawk and Lee Israel met at Julius's, which is often renowned as one of Manhattan's oldest gay bars. Jack was no stranger to the law, having spent two years in prison for holding up a cab driver after he tried to skip on paying for his trip. He also had a reputation for getting himself into trouble with various boys of the night, who he requested the services of, and again tried to skip the bill. 
Jack Hawk had an undeniable charisma to him, which Lee could very much use in her endeavors. So over the two year period of Israel duping the collector's world in New York, whispers began that her letters may not be the real deal. One by one, collectors began turning her away and some even warning her that they would be taking legal action against her. This is where Jack came in. Using his charm, he was able to take over the sales aspect of Lee's operation. For a while, this worked swimmingly. That was until Jack walked into the office of a Manhattan collector by the name of David Lowenhertz. In a 2018 article, David Lowenhertz recalls his first encounter with Jack, stating, quote, when Jack first walked into my office with a batch of original letters for sale, he claimed that he had found them in the closet of his dead lover's apartment and was disposing of them. He indicated that they were more, and if we could do some business, he would offer them to me before approaching anyone else. I eagerly acquired the first and several subsequent groups of letters, but never sold on any because something told me that Jack and his story were fake, even if these letters were genuine. Right, yeah, I mean, I feel like the in the dead lover's closet is already a bit of an alarm bell. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit OTT. If someone's, if there's like stuff belonging to a dead person for sale in the, like a lover, it's just like, yeah, I'd say you want to, you want to be thinking about that a little bit before you get involved. But I mean, th- this guy is, you know, the, t- the top of the top in terms of, you know, collectors of, you know, literature and autographs and stuff. And he was able to certify that, that it was an original. So he was a bit like, oh, okay. it's real. This guy is shady, but let's, I'm going to take them and hold on to them and see, see what happens. Right. Okay. That makes more sense. So David Lowenhurt's hunch was of course justified. These letters were the originals, but they had been stolen by Israel and replaced by replicas crafted from carefully studying the originals, acquiring various typewriters from the letters' respective eras, replicating the paper used as closely as possible. A job executed well enough to fool even some of the most well-trained eyes in the collector's world. That was until Mr. Lauenhertz ran into a fellow collector friend of his and mentioned a letter that he had recently acquired from his new friend Jack. The letter was penned by Ernest Hemingway to Norman Cousins, the editor-in-chief at the Saturday Review. Rather than being impressed with Lauenhertz's new findings, the fellow collector quickly argued the validity of this letter, claiming that he knew for a fact that Columbia University had this letter in its possession already. So this meant that either Jack had stolen the original without anyone noticing, or the one that David had was a fake. In reality, neither was true. It was the version in Columbia's archive that turned out to be the replica. But how could this have happened? We got, we got a mystery to solve. Let's put on our thinking caps. So Mr. Lauenhertz quickly acquired the logbooks for the library in which the letters were stored. That's when he spotted a name that would unravel everything. Lee Israel. Why did she not use a fake name? Yeah, that's absolutely rookie error. <laughs> even I, I would know to do that. And it sounds like she wasn't quite even famous enough that people, like if she gave Angela Jones, people wouldn't be like, you're not Angela Jones, you're obviously yeah. really Israel. You yeah, know? especially when your job is in writing, like I feel like that's something where so people are so used to not knowing what face goes with the name. Like, mm. unless she had to have like a little ID. But then if she's forging loads of letters, you can forge a fucking fake passport. Like, <laughs> what's going on? Exactly. Like, she's like, oh, my God, I, I can, you know, give me some Hemingway, no problem. But I like, where would one start with a fake driver's license? Yeah, literally. Yeah. It, it sounds like at this point, right, they've been doing it for a while, surely. And, like, surely at this point you'd start to get a bit paranoid and be like, 
maybe something could go wrong or maybe you wouldn't I don't know I feel like it's one of those things that it's hard to know what you'd act like genuinely actually feel in that scenario and also she sounds like quite arrogant and like if if she's like oh I'm not working with I'm not working a nine to five five jobs I'm I'm not a wage slave then it's kind of like I feel like there's a lot of there's a lot going on there to be in terms of um self-esteem and ego so maybe there was this element of being like I can do what I want and it's not gonna come back and bite me in the ass I think that she was getting quite nervous in terms of like dealing with the collectors and like selling off the stuff but yeah maybe she was like you know that's the only bit I need to worry about because people have caught on that you know to watch out for me in those kind of circles but she's like going to the library you know what's the problem this discovery very much marked the beginning of the end for Ms. Israel and Mr. Hawk. The FBI was contacted by Mr. Lowenhurst shortly after his visit to Columbia University, and quickly a sting operation was formulated. The next time that Jack Hawk got in touch with Lowenhurst, he tipped off the FBI, who rushed to arm him with a discreet microphone to catch Jack fabricating the origins of these letters. So accounts differed to exactly how the arrests were made. But in her memoir, Israel claims that she was due to meet Jack at a local deli where they had agreed to convene and hand over some cash that had been made through a recent sale. Israel claims that Jack never showed up. And after leaving the deli, she was confronted by two FBI agents that told her that Jack Hawk was in federal custody and had requested she not ever contact him again. Which to me is so sad. <laughs> um, and there's actually not really any more information about that. I, like maybe he was just trying to save his own ass, you know, thinking that like if, if she gets in touch, then they're going to like have more evidence or whatever. It does sound also like it's weird it, because you think like if you're he's been in the crime scene before, like it's not like she's dragged him into it for the first time in his life. But maybe FBI is kind of different to like not paying for stuff. Like, I guess mm. maybe he was like, oh, no, now you've actually got me in some shit yeah or maybe like um maybe he didn't say that maybe they were full of shit maybe maybe israel was trying to i mean the fact that she has a memoir is like incredibly ironic like fair fair enough clearly this all worked out for her in the end but um that does sound like something that maybe she would add in to be like poor me oh yeah so on this on this day when she was confronted by the FBI, she managed to avoid arrest. She went home and destroyed basically all the evidence that could incriminate her. Lee Israel was eventually charged and pled guilty to conspiracy to transport stolen property, being sentenced to six months house arrest and five years probation. So she didn't actually get, she didn't have to serve any time. So that's, you know, I'm happy for her. Six months house arrest. We've all been there, babes. Yeah, exactly. Get over it. Crimea River. By all accounts, Lee Israel went back to living a very quiet life after the scandal and worked as a copy editor for Scholastic Books before passing away from cancer in 2014. Jack Hawk died shortly after his arrest in 1994 due to complications caused by AIDS. In 2018, a film entitled Can You Ever Forgive Me hit theatres, starring Melissa McCarthy as Lee Israel and Richard E. Grant as Jack Hawk. The film took much of its information from Lee's memoirs of the same name, released in 2008. The film was received with glowing reviews, particularly for its realistic depiction of 90s New York uh, and the LGBTQ plus scene of the era. 
McCarthy was also nominated for a ton of awards, including an Oscar for her depiction of Israel. When reflecting on her time as a literary forger, Israel stated in quite the mic drop moment, quote, I still consider the letters to be my best work. Boom. I mean, that's also like, what else did she do? <laughs> Just... <laughs> she, she did the biographies. <laughs> yeah, but that's how, those sound shit. <laughs> so like, I don't know. Is it, is it like her being like, yeah, I think I did a good thing. Or is it her being like, I didn't do many good things. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I guess you could see it either way. I prefer, I prefer the version that it is her being like, fuck you. Like these letters were good. I think, and to be fair, I think that by a lot of other sort of accounts and stuff, they did, they were quite good. There's not really a modern equivalent to this. Cause like, like faking emails, is that really, it must be, well, again, I bet it's one of those things where it seems easy, but it's actually like probably hard, hard to trace. Um, but like I've written, I've written for other people in my capacity as a comedian, I've written jokes for other comedians where you have to take on their voice. And it is quite satisfying when you can do that and you're like, no one knows that that was me. Do you get like um, a little, so I, little hit, a little rush? There is. And I think it's like, I don't, it's not that good to tell people about it because I feel like no one wants to know that comedians, first of all, half everyone thinks that comedians make up everything they say on the spot. Like, so them finding out that sometimes they get other people to write for them would like absolutely ruin them. Um, I feel like I am quite good at, you know, picking up the way people speak. And I don't think I'm a million miles off. Like maybe I could have gone down this path if I was born in that day and age. Like you can see how it would be like a skill that you would get kind of addicted to practicing and being like how far can I take this like it definitely is something where once you open that can of worms you're like there's a lot of worms and I'm I'm into the worms <laughs> I like recognize I recognize what she's doing in yeah. in in the sense of like towing the line of like how much can I get away with or like how what's the most realistic way to do this and it just sounds like it's it's like something maybe that she was quite good at like surprisingly good at and therefore that didn't match up with how much care she was taking because it like sounds like it kind of spiraled a bit um but yeah this relationship between her and the um the other guy what was his name again jack hawk jack hawk jack hawk I don't know. I feel like if you're in a situation where your friendship is based on you having careers out of lies, like it's like, how would you trust that person? I don't know if I would, like if I knew, if I knew someone was lying as such a big part of their life, like I would be like, well, I don't trust that you'd never apply that to me. Or like, I feel like you wouldn't, you'd either have to be like, all in like we're each other's ride or dies like we're in this together till the end like it's all about us we we're the only people who are real for each other or it's like you'll never trust each other at all because you both know that you're criminals and that it could go either way so well it, it's funny because in the film so by all accounts like the film is is quite accurate they obviously like add a love interest for for lee israel which didn't actually exist but um, but yeah, for the most part, it is quite accurate, I've heard. And 
in the film, Jack uh, uh, steals from her a couple times and like trashes her apartment while she's away and <laughs> kills her cat. I think that that was oh, uh, dramatized. Not... <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, I think it was. So. It was. Um, it was a neglect situation rather than a violence you know, situation. Manslaughter, active murder, not manslaughter. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So he had shown that he was not really a very trustworthy kind of person and i think she was aware of this and when they were due to meet at the the deli that fateful day it was actually because she wanted to count the money um because he had been stealing before so it seems wow. like she didn't really trust him um it is a genuinely really really good film though um mm. and i think that initially it was kind of like oh cool two straight people playing two gay people what a exciting turn of events um but they do actually do a really really good job so was lee israel gay as well yeah oh interesting yeah i didn't really know where like it never i looked through the script and i was kind of like i couldn't really find a point where that naturally made sense to mention i feel like there would definitely be some <laughs> Some people would be like, well, yeah, that's why. <laughs> that's why she did all this. <laughs> she was, you know, a sinner. So. She was, she lived her life in sin. <laughs> Just one After of the many it, sins. Literally, like, I had a gig the other day where I started a bit about being queer, but then realised I'd run out of time. So I was like, can't talk about that. It's a sin. Ended it like that. And I was like, that's really funny. It's quite funny to say that something is a sin. <laughs> Yeah, let's bring it back. Let's start, let's start calling things a sin again. Right, so, Anya Magliano. Hello. I sense in my heart that you might have a, a tale for us. I do have a tale. Um, an incredible one uh, about a woman called Hester. Dowden um Hester is a great name Hester Dowden is such a like I feel like it's the name of like the um like PSHE teacher PSHE PS I can't remember what that subject was at school but like the one that isn't really real and they just avoid giving you actually any useful information for like three years but like that's the name of (laughs) Hester Dowden is the name of a teacher who teaches that and she was knocking around in 1868 to 1949 which is the 19th to 20th century because one is zip. anyway that's um she was in the older days like. yeah she was old as fuck <laughs> she wasn't old as fuck she's from she's from the older time if she was alive um, now yeah if she was alive now she'd be so old it's unreal <laughs> <laughs> um but basically her whole vibe was that she was a Irish spiritualist medium um mm. full-time full-time job uh not a side she didn't hustle. have to be a short sleeve office slave or whatever she didn't have to yeah I know yes. this could have been Leah's Israel's path um she claimed to contact the spirits of Oscar Wilde Shakespeare and a bunch of other writers um and her dad was like a literary scholar but um yeah it sounds like she didn't have she didn't have a a great time I mean you think like if you're 
I guess it you guess I guess people often do follow somewhat in the past of their parents and their careers and hers was just a slight twist on the classic um basically her whole thing was that she just like said she could chat to these famous authors who were apparently dying to get this these messages out via Hester this random woman um and she published a book of her communications uh the ones with Oscar Wilde are absolutely off the rails like recap Irish lady Hester yeah she is like hi I can speak to dead people yeah I think she's tried to be a musician first and then that didn't go well and then she had a bad marriage and then she was like oh oh god randomly I can speak to dead people specifically famous authors right yeah okay so and then she 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 writes books she's like it's not my writing it's the dead people I'm just the vessel yeah but also I feel like it's the dead people are being like this is like I'm kind of like passing this information on to you yeah okay like gossiping kind of yeah like (laughs) but giving her goss giving her goss um and it was I guess not a million miles away from what Lee Israel was doing with some of the stuff with Wilde she was saying what his opinions were of more like with other writers that were around at the same time so like George Bernard Shaw so he was slagging him off no for George Bernard Shaw she Wilde apparently was like yeah I really like him but then he said um Ulysses by James Joyce was heated vomit um (laughs) which like to be fair that's not that's kind of Oscar Wilde vibes like it's not the worst but the thing that I thought was just this was where it turned for me was when she claimed that Wilde was actually not gay at all and really loved women and he and like was like quite like um explicitly sexually attracted to women I just think that's (laughs) so funny for her to be like don't worry like he has come back and he's told me after all he was not gay like he's he loves women so much (laughs) and it just makes me think like I'm surprised that people didn't pick up on that and start to try and like believe her at that point I feel like there are some people who are so homophobic that it would have been like oh thank god (laughs) yeah that must be use this as evidence a tricky situation because like if you're homophobic and then someone offers you this sort of olive branch this this thing that's like might work in your favor but then you also have to admit that you believe in this supernatural thing you know maybe that's the way around it maybe that's the way to start getting people to stop being homophobic is to put them in a double bind where to validate their homophobia they have to admit to being thick I mean, I feel like the act of being homophobic is already admitting that you're thick. Yeah, exactly. We're just leading them, leading them to the end. Um, but yeah, she, uh, I don't think many people believed her. Oh. I don't think, I guess the thing with Lee Israel is that she kind of like developed it and changed and had a few different methods going on. Whereas this is just like a woman called Hester being like, yeah, Oscar Wilde's told me he's straight, like got some other got some other feedback from him about other authors. Like, where do you go from there? You can't develop that 
further um and she published a book called voices from the void um which doesn't have many amazon reviews one Mm. one star that's titled not informative from (laughs) linda i mean linda you just found out that oscar wilde is straight what more do you want that's very informative i would say I mean, to be fair, Linda does summarise it like way more succinctly than I just did because she says, a medium explains getting book reviews from Oscar Wilde after he died. Not what I expected. (laughs) (laughs) But one person found it helpful, according to Amazon. So (laughs) there you go. (laughs) Pretty informative. Not sure what she was expecting. (laughs) Yeah. Not what I expected. What did you expect? (laughs) How do you, what voices, it's called Voices from the Void. Oscar Wilde from Purgatory. Maybe she thought it was more like fanfic. Yeah, it's just so it's so shady. Like it's so it's just p- piggybacking off someone else's success, isn't it? Like yeah. obviously this mm. is going to happen when I die. People will be like, "Oh yeah, Anya's written to me and my death to like let me know what she thinks of the like semi finalists of the Chaucer <laughs> Student Comedy Award." She's tipping. She's tipping her favorite. <laughs> like, and do you know what? That's just the price. That's just the price you pay. I don't know. Maybe I should start doing that with like, I don't know. Don't even, I don't even think there are any dead comedians around that I would want to have the opinions of now. Um, but it would be Bill quite Hicks. good to be like, but yeah, I'd be like, Bill Hicks has uh, let me know that he r- loves my stand-up. <laughs> and just that you should Weirdly, that's him. all he has to say. Um, the only thing he said, he was like, I really didn't want to say this, but I can't keep my mouth shut. Like I need to let you know. <laughs> so yeah I kind of respect that I think like maybe maybe she was just uninspired maybe she felt like her dad was like set the bar too high she didn't know how to do it she didn't have she didn't know how to find her own literary voice like I'm sure there are plenty of more sympathetic readings up until the point when you get to her being like Oscar Wilde is straight that was a point where I was like oh yeah I don't like I can't I'm less sympathetic towards you now (laughs) Yeah, don't try to take one of us to your side. Exactly. Um, like, maybe she was a bit of a gay. You're saying it was like, were you saying it was like quite detailed, his talking about how much he loved women? Because like, It was like... If Hester was like, I would quite like to hang out with some ladies, but I don't know how to express that. Let's create this elaborate... <laughs> This was her coming out story. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's not. It's not. It's not explicitly. It's not explicit porn. Okay. Um, it's just like general being like, oh, I love. Uh, what does she say? She says. He says. Sorry, Oscar Wilde obviously <laughs> says. My sensations were so varied with regard to your sex, dear lady, that you would find painted on my heart that internal organ so often quoted by the vulgar. You would find every shade of desire there, and even more. Women were ever to me a cluster of stars. They contained for me all and more than all that God has created. So like religious vibes as well. But he's just being, she's just, he's just being like, by the way, like women are absolutely amazing, I think. It's not, <laughs> which to be fair, like she could, guess this is what happens if people are forced to stay in the closet, they start. Yeah. And forced to also become a writer from their parents. Yeah, literally. So, so the moral of the story is, just live your truth and you know papa don't preach and 
um, just just be yourself. Yeah, just like. be a be a ghostwriter. Literally, if the person if you can't get a job for someone, uh, that doesn't mean you can't write for them anyway. So, if you if there's an author that you really like and you think I reckon I could do a good job as them, don't let the fact that they're dead or unwilling stop you. Just go out and find that work. <laughs> go out and find yeah. that work. Follow your dreams. <laughs> Thank you so much for uh, for joining us today on this lovely journey. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm feeling uh, feeling inspired. Yeah, <laughs> good. Inspired I, I to... look forward to see your name on the most wanted list. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the dream, really. Um, yeah, these are. It's just. It just reminds me. It's like, oh, you can be quite audacious. You don't always have to be so worried about what people think of you. You can be a, become a medium. Why not? Yeah. Um, if people wanted to find you on the internet, where would they go? Um, on Twitter, I'm at Anya Mags, A-N-I-A-M-A-G-S. On Instagram, Anya Magliano. Uh, and also that on TikTok, but I actually don't know if I... <laughs> don't know if I should be saying TikTok in the same same way. I feel like that's maybe more embarrassing. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's I also I... don't even really know how to link people to TikTok. I think maybe, yeah. I think maybe let people find that if they need to, but um, yeah, oh my God, I need her. to go and have a coffee. <laughs> if you, if you need me, I'm, I'm knocking around everywhere. Like just Google, just Google it. Just Google it. I'll be there. Yeah. And look, look in the show notes, look on our Instagram. Um, if you do like this podcast, please do rate and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Uh, and follow us on Instagram as well. We are Fakes and Frauds Pod on Instagram or Fakes and Fraud on Frauds or Fakes and Frauds on Twitter. And um, we hope to see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Bye.